piece of paper up here distracting me. Um, this morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taking away, taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskin, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Would you join me in a quick word of prayer? Lord, be with me this morning that my words might be useful to your people. Be with us that as we hear your word that we might encounter you and we might be transformed into the image of Jesus, your Son and our Lord. Amen. So I have, as I learn about this area, I hear that it has a rich history in more than mushrooms. I hear that it has a rich history in the, uh, the Underground Railroad. Is that correct? I look forward to learning so much more about this. You know, as a, as a kid who grew up in the South but raised from the North, you, you know, I get these little pieces of all over our country. And I was raised by a history teacher so, so much so that on my way to my grandparents' home every summer, Gettysburg wasn't merely a place we would go. It was our rest stop. We would stop at every potential battlefield site, historical landmarker, and so forth. So I am looking forward to learning about how this area played a role in those that were trying to get to the north, to get to freedom, to escape slavery and violence 
and hatred and evil. And I heard that they were told and even sang songs about looking to the true north. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Like anybody who has spent maybe even a day in, in the Boy Scouts, you learned that you need, to, you need to carry with you a compass so that you can find your way around. We know that there were people back in the day that they couldn't, they would travel the seas by looking where? To the stars. And you had to get your bearings. And by getting your bearings, you had to know where your true north was. This passage was long. I actually wanted it to be longer, but to spare Darcy from reading two whole chapters, I cut it a little bit short, but I wanted you to get these little snapshots, these little stories, these little vignettes in the life of Jesus. But what I really wanted to cover was chapters 8 and 9. After Jesus says and does his single longest teaching that's recorded in the Gospels in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, there he set up his values, he set up his ways, his, he set up the new kingdom picture. And then he goes on about his life, and he starts living life. And we get in these little vignettes, we get these little moments where he engages and encounters people. Let's look at the kind of people that he encountered. Right after he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he goes out, and he came down the mountainside, and the, as the crowds followed him, he runs into a leper. Now we know you don't want to run into a leper ever, let alone at a time without antibiotics without medical treatments, without ointments. With, you, you recognize somebody has what they deemed was leprosy, and you had to be outcast from the town. Because for the good of the town, you can't have it spread. And though it's harsh and difficult, I think everybody even understands the, the leper has to be separate. And the leper comes to Jesus for healing. And Jesus touched him. This person who probably hadn't been touched in a long time, who hadn't had human contact or affection, who hadn't had the respect, was now touched. And then he goes on, and the, we have the story about the faith of the centurion. We have a person who's outside the people of promise, who's outside of Israel, who's actually one of the oppressors. And he says, I have a servant who's sick. Can you heal him? He's like, sure, I'll, I'll come. He's like, but I, thank you for your time. I appreciate that you would come all the way over. Um, just say the word. I understand how authority works. I know that if I say, they're going to jump. And so if you just say, he's, he, please. And so Jesus marveled at his faith and said he's healed. And at that, that moment, he was healed. And then he goes on and heals many, including Peter, Peter's mother-in-law. And he heals, casts out demons, heals the sick, all these marvelous things. Then he gives him a little lesson on the cost of following him. You should see, one of the teachers said, I, I want to be your follower. And he said, the foxes have no holes. The foxes have their holes, the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be a lonely road. If you're going to follow me, it's going to be an empty and difficult. It's, there's going to be challenges. This isn't all just happiness and healings. There's difficulties ahead in my path. They get in the boat, they go across, Jesus takes a nap. I love that Jesus is taking a nap with experienced fishermen, with boatsmen. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent time on a lake or a river or in the ocean with boat people. That sounds awful that I call them boat people, isn't it? But I mean it. Boat people are insane. And if you're one of them, 
you have stories to tell where I'm gonna sit back and say, I'm glad I wasn't with you on that boat. <laughs> there was a time I went out with Kenny Parks, and yes, I'm naming him by name. We were on a 16-foot Boston whaler, and we left the intercoastal waterway, the protected, calm waters of the intercoastal. We went out along the beach. I'm not a boat person. And now it's a summer storm coming in, and I look out, and there's a, it's a dainty, cute expression. It's called a water spout. <laughs> and our engine didn't work. And I'm standing, holding the boat, chest deep in water, watching a water spout and storm come our way. And Kenny is not freaking out. Kenny is calm. I am not. But Jesus was in the boat. By the way, the, how it ends, the boat gets on, the engine goes, and we have to go out to get back around, and we have to head into the storm through about five-foot waves. I did not ride with him again. <laughs> now, Jesus is out there. He's on the boat, taking a nap, as one does in the middle of a storm. And they're like, they're, the, the, the boat people are freaking out. And Jesus gets up and is like, all right, calm. It reminds me of Max. And he says, be still. And all the wild things freeze. Jesus has power over disease, over demons, over the spiritual realm, over the physical realm. And then, of course, he gets off after that and uh, goes and heals a couple demon-possessed men and throws uh, all the demons into a herd of pigs and they drown. And the people say, please leave from us because we don't know what to do with you. Then he comes along a paralytic. They bring him to the boat. They bring a man on a mat. They bring him who cannot walk, who, who's never walked. And he sees him. And then the, he, he is, he's not alone. It's not just the friends and the paralytic. He sees that there's the Pharisees and the scribes and some of the other people there. And so what he says to the man is, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know if you uh, know this, but humans don't have the right to forgive people's sins. I can forgive you for offending me, and you can forgive me for offending you. We can go through a forgiveness and reconciliation process, but actual just absolving you of your sins is not a human right. And yet Jesus did it, and they took umbrage to that. And he said, which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And then he turns to the man and says, get up and walk. Wow. This Jesus is something else, isn't he? And then we get to the story that we just had, where he comes across Matthew, the tax collector. <clears throat> now, I just want to be sure that we understand ourselves in context. It's easy to get a caricature of the sinners. It's easy to get a caricature of those that are labeled as sinner, as deserving of being called sinners. And that sinner was indeed like a, a mark of their moral failure. And, and anybody who is a, called a sinner and was also a tax collector, we all readily assume what? that they're skimming off the top, that they're taxing extra and taking it. We have this whole idea that anybody who works for the tax man is kind of corrupt at heart. Even today, I think it still stands with us. But one of the things I want you to know that back in Matthew and Mark and Luke's day, sinner was a word that you used to describe somebody you don't think is one of you and that you want to distance yourself from. So everybody in some way probably thought the other was a sinner. Now, of course, the Pharisees, they had their own sense of righteousness because they were very strict. And why were they strict? 
They recognized that, that their people and their place and their power and their property were under Roman occupation. And the way that they felt was the way that God wanted to redeem them and to release them from this occupation was through obedience, strict, meticulous obedience. So the Pharisees got really good at strict and meticulous obedience. They memorized the word. They portioned off their tithes. They portioned off even their, their, what their, their, their spices that they were using. It's, it's been alleged that they would do that. I mean, that's some pretty nitty-gritty detail. That's dotting the I and crossing the T, isn't it? And that's how they felt that they were going to be redeemed. Then there were the zealots. The zealots thought they just needed to get arms. And they needed to get people together. There were the Essenes. That was another group that was there. They just said, we need to be monks. Let's just go out to the, let's go out to the outer deserts where nobody will bother us. If you ever, had the, ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were the records and keepings of the Essene people. Everybody had their tribe. Everybody had their group. There were the, those that accommodated the Herodians. Some of the Sadducees, they, 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 were, um, they were just like, let's just make peace with Rome and live and let live. There's money to be made now. There's peace to be had. Let's just do what we're told and make things work. And so here we have Jesus. He's this upstart teacher who's doing all these amazing things, bizarre things, powerful things. And then he comes up and he comes across Matthew, a tax collector, a Jewish person who's betraying his own people by working with the oppressors, who's making sure that you give your money and your, your goods to the oppressors, and you probably assume he's taken more. And Jesus walks by this guy and says, follow me. So he packs up his bags and follows him. He invites Jesus to dinner. He invites his friends over, who are also, you can probably guess, sinners. And Jesus is having a great time with them. They're drinking drinks, eating I don't know what that was going to make up what they were eating. Probably some hummus. They were eating. And then the people came by and asked, why does your teacher eat with the sinners? Why is he with them? Jesus hears this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And we could end with that. But what does Jesus say next? I desire mercy not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea 6. He tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not the sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Right after that, he's not only questioned by the Pharisees, he's questioned by the, the, the friendly inquisitors. John the Baptist guys, they come to him and are asking the disciples, why isn't he fasting? And he tells them that what you're, when you're with the bridegroom, you're not going to fast. There's plenty of time for that after the bridegroom leaves. And he also then comes out with the very famous thing. He says, you don't take new wine and do what? Put it into old wineskins. It'll all break. You don't sew new cloth onto old fabric or, or it'll tear. You don't take what I'm doing and put it in the old system because what I'm doing is new. What we are doing here is fresh. So what does he do right after these two teachings, these core teachings, these proclamations? Well, he goes out to heal a sick woman. They come to him and say, my daughter's dead. Can you come, can you come to her? As he's walking to go visit a dead body, he's touched by a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. 
and she's healed because of her faith. And he goes in to see the girl. They're mourning because she's passed. And he says, leave. She's not dead. They laugh, but he has the last laugh because she rises. This is our snapshot into Jesus's life, a day in the life of Jesus. He's dealing with lepers. He's dealing with afflicted. He's dealing with the deceased. He's dealing with those who are long-suffering. He's dealing with the oppressed. He's dealing with the sinners, the corrupt, and the kind of uh, some who might be from the sleazy side of life. That's Jesus and his ways. And yet, 2,000 years later, we are here following in the name of Jesus. We gather, and I'm just going to say, I don't, know, I don't know you all well enough, but I just know that you know old-time church culture is to do what? Go to the first Presbyterian church of doing fine. You go to, they, they go down and receive Mass at Our Lady of I'm Okay. The First Baptist Church of uh, I'm Good and Nothing's Wrong. Isn't that the way that we kind of come to church, all put together? That's why on Sunday you put on your what? Your Sunday best, which never was really the Sunday best, because if it really you felt you had to put on the best, you'd save up and put a lot of money into a really, really, really fancy suit that you would wear one day. And anyway, don't get me down that road. So in some ways to tell stories, I love movies that have little vignettes, little glimpses, little things, and then eventually it, the piece comes to clarity come to, uh, and it narrows in on the focus. And what I would want you to do is, out of these two chapters that we just surveyed, that we just skipped our way through, I would like you to zero in on what he told the religious leaders to figure out. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Now, when he says that, that sacrifice is just a catch-all term for rituals, for religious obedience and practices and rituals. Now, God instituted the sacrificial system, did he not? God gave them the law on how you're supposed to come to the temple. He gave them how to build the temple. He gave them the dimensions and the codes and the ways. He set up the Levites. You're not even going to get a piece of the land. You're just going to be church workers for the rest of your life throughout all generations. And he set them as priests. And he set these codes and ways on how you approach a holy God. Because he's taking an unholy people and telling them how to enter into the presence of holiness. And that is good and beautiful. However... Is what God desires proper sacrifice, or does he desire mercy? Now, some of you might look at this, and you might go back, oh, wow, I wonder what was being said in uh, Hosea chapter 6. Because Hosea is an amazing story about grace and redemption. We'll cover that one another time, maybe. But if you go back and you look in your Old Testament at Hosea 6.6, 6, it says, I want steadfastness more and sacrifice. And then you go look at your little footnotes. There's a little footnote there. And you go to the footnote. It says, in the Septuagint, it says mercy. So here's something interesting about this. In our oldest Old Testament text that we've built our Old Testament translations from, we have a little bit of textual variance. This is what they call it when there's like differences between copies. So what we have is there's the old ancient Hebrew text that said, I, I want steadfastness, I want faithfulness more than I want sacrifice. And there's a contrast right there. I want you to be obedient more than doing the systems that help cleanse you after obedience. But somehow the words got changed when they did the translation from the Hebrew into the Greek, which we call the Septuagint. 
And in the Septuagint, it's translated, I value mercy. And so here, Matthew is having Jesus quote the Septuagint and not the ancient Hebrew text. Not that I thought that they had, like, you know, scrolls out there to compare. They're just going with what they had, right? But I think it's interesting that Jesus himself tells the people, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And let's just let sacrifice represent the whole of religious obedience and system. And now, if we zoom in on this story, on that right there, let's figure out, again, what does he mean? Go and figure out, I value mercy over sacrifice. Why did he quote the prophet speaking the words of God to the people? I desire mercy over sacrifice. Friends, I think this is Jesus' true north. I think this is Jesus' core directive on why he came down and dwelt among us. I think Jesus' whole like, mission and passion and, 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 and path is summed up in I value, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, if we go back to the chapter 8 where it begins, he t- He touched a man with leprosy. Jesus made himself what? Yes, unclean. He he saw a person asking to be healed who hasn't had human contact. And if you go back and look at the studies, what happens when babies aren't given enough human contact? What happens when humans are put in solitary? What happens when we lose touch? How important is touch? Now, some of us are not huggers. And for those of the rest of you, you are my tribe. You are my people. Like, we give the warm embrace of a good... I did. I spoke at a church once early on, Bob, and it was was at my mentor's church, Glenn Marshall's church, and it was the first time I ever spoke, and so he asked, how did he do? They said, oh, his sermon was pretty good. Um, He's not much of a hugger. I don't know these people, and they're coming up to me. Oh, nice to see you. And I'm like, "Uh, I did. It was awkward. I gave him the handshake. But people need touch, don't we? We need that contact. And Jesus broke the rule to meet the need. He broke the code to show mercy. The centurion wasn't a Jew. He shouldn't be in under the promises of God. He shouldn't be receiving the promises of the Messiah, the sent one of, of, of Yahweh. But he comes in and says, hey, can you heal? I have a servant. They're really not well. Can you, can you do something about it? And I just say the word because I, I know who you are and I understand how it works. He healed the Gentile. That's outside the code. He healed many. He had power over the spirits. And then he goes out on the boat and he calms the storm and he's showing all these different powers. And then he goes to the demon possessed and he sends them. Why is he in an area that has a herd of pigs? That's Gentile territory. He's out among the Gentiles again. He's out among the people that are not the people of God. And then he has the audacity to forgive a person's sins and tell him to get up and walk. Put yourself in a Pharisee's mindset. 
We are under oppression. We are under Romans, Rome's thumb. We are under this fight. We are not free because of our disobedience. So we need to double down on the law. We need to become meticulous. We need to, and anybody who's not in is now out. And then comes along Jesus, who's doing all these things that are different, that don't match up. Where he's doing these things where he's touched by a, a, a woman who's unclean, and he turns around and says, you've been healed. He touched a woman who's unclean. Now, you all are just taking it very passively, but back in the day, this would have been scandal. Absolutely scandalous. He was touched by an unclean person who was a woman on his way to go visit a dead person. This is Jesus. He doesn't have any respect for the customs and ways, does he? He has no respect for what Hosea might have been calling the sacrifices, the rituals, the systems. He had no respect for that, and he went in and just, just doled out mercy everywhere he went, that Jesus. Yeah, it's kind of funny when you say it that way, isn't it? You see, Jesus was even questioned by the people who were expecting him to be someone special. John's followers. John told him, hey, this is my cousin, but he's, he's the one, I think. Um, why isn't he fasting? Because you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Friends, we can't, as we try to figure out how it means to be uh, faithful Christ followers, we can't put new wine, the new wine of Jesus, into the old wine of rituals. We can't put the new wine of Jesus into the old wine, old skins of, of obedience. And, that, and please don't hear me to say that grace means we don't have to obey the law that we don't have to obey God, but we have a true north to determine what are we supposed to do. We are supposed to be people who love, who show mercy, who transgress the cultural norms and have dinner with the sinners and laugh and drink and celebrate and call them even more so to come with us. How about that? He went and got a sinner to be on his leadership board. He went and got a tax collector, a Roman sympathizer. We're trying to get rid of Rome, and now you're inviting him in? Imagine that when, when, as he gathered the group, as they're like kind of, you know, everybody gets into a new group. I, I remember when I was first you know, assigned a football team in Pop Warner, and you're kind of like, all right, he's faster than me. Okay, so who's bigger? Who's stronger? Imagine them sizing themselves up. And there's the zealots. There's Peter and there's John and James. And they're like, they're the ones that have like, they, they have a stash of like daggers and swords and stuff. And they're waiting, they're waiting for the militia to be called up. And then they look over and they're like, what's Matthew doing here? What's the tax guy doing here? Oh, Jesus invited him. You see, that's Jesus. That's his true north because he desires mercy more than sacrifice. He desires love. They will know that you are what? My followers, my disciples, by your what? Love for one another. New wineskins, new kingdom cannot fit in the old, and we cannot try to go back. And I know, sometimes we look around, especially now that we have news coverage from everywhere, and we get updates. I started following some, some new Instagrams because they were posting a lot of stuff on the bridge that's out. 
Some, by the way, some people have asked, uh, yes, it, it took away one of my three routes to church. And so now I have two routes to church, and it's still working just fine. But so I started following, because I thought, and now I realized all this person does is post all the negative things that happen in Philadelphia. Oh, congratulations, you found one weird, negative, disturbing thing a day out of a million and a half people. Should I be surprised that we can get a weird video clip once a day or twice a day out of a million and a half people? No, but if I get that steady diet of it, steady diet of it, if I watch the news, what do I start to think? That this world is going where? In a handbasket. We've discussed before. I don't know how the handbasket helps. But the reality is, let us not be dissuaded. Let us not put our eyes on Instagram and, and, and Channel 6 News or whatever one that you watch and get our minds away from the idea that this world is actually in God's hands. Jesus is alive, resurrected, and doing well, and he's called us to be his people. Yes, there's problems. Yes, there's pain and suffering. Yes, there's sadness and sin everywhere. Yes, there's broken relationships. But let us not be the people who are retreating and, and saying, get in the bunkers, everybody, and wait for Jesus to return. No, let us be the people that go out and have dinner with the sinners and welcome them and say, come follow, because here is where you can find life, true, real, and abundant life. Cast off those things that ensnare you, entangle you, and, and, and hold you back. Cast off the things of this world that promise to give you satisfaction and, and value and meaning, but really just end up being wanting and empty. Jesus says, cast off even some of those religious totems, those religious ways that we think are going to lead us to godliness, but they aren't true north towards mercy. How do we know what God is calling us to do? Well, in the effort to protect ourselves or be moral, is what, we, is what we're doing going to hurt someone else? Then it's probably not something we ought to do. In the way that we're trying to show mercy or love to somebody, is it going to uh, leave people vulnerable? It's probably not something we ought to do. Let's be the people who set our course, set our true north on Jesus, and look at the vignettes. He touched the unclean, he visited the sick, he, ca he, he carried the burdens of the dead, he went out with the crazy people. I mean, you know, sometimes I don't know who, I, don't, I believe that there is possession still to this day, but I don't know how to identify it, but I just know that there's people who are hurting and messed up and need the healing hand of Jesus and his presence from his people. And last time I checked, where is people? Where is hands? Where are his feet? So we get to be the ones to go north with mercy. Amen? Lord, help us to figure out how to do that this week. Help us to figure out how to do that in our lives. Lord, I pray that you will give us wisdom to identify that which is the, well, the old wineskins, the old righteousness mindset. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see the difference between mercy and sacrifices. Help us, Lord, so that we might not only experience more mercy for ourselves, but that we might be your hands and feet, your conduit to, 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 to extend mercy to someone else. Let us be someone who comes along to Matthew and says, come follow Jesus. Give us this opportunity, fill us with your spirit, and give us the courage to love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.